Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 290. This land is your land. This land is my land. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Monica, Lawrence, and Sarah for signing up already. Brunenburg had been a titanic struggle. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle speaks of how the fighting lasted from morning to night, until, quote, the field grew dark with the blood of men, end quote. And that was blood that was spilled from warriors of no less than four separate kingdoms. The scribes speak of how the ground was littered with men impaled upon spears. This was human devastation on a scale that hadn't been seen on the island in living memory. And now, the Scots, Northmen, and Strathclyde Britons were fleeing the field. But it wasn't over. If allowed to regroup, the armies of Dublin, Scotland, and Strathclyde could come back. And Athelstan was sure to have realized that he had come dangerously close to losing that battle. He needed to end this decisively. So the Chronicle and William of Malmesbury tell us that as the multinational army fled the field of Brunenburg, the West Saxons mounted up and chased after them. This was no longer simply about winning. This was about ensuring that the invading forces were destroyed completely. And the military use of horses was rare in the early days of the Anglo-Saxons, but that had changed over the centuries. Athelstan had mandated the landlords provide no less than two mounted warriors for every plow they owned. Mentions of cavalry units are frequent in the written record. Alfred the Great himself was a cavalry commander before he became king. And right now, the West Saxon cavalry had one purpose. To hunt down the fleeing soldiers. The Norsemen, what remained of them, rushed to their ships and desperately attempted to set sail. The Scots, led by King Constantine, struggled over difficult terrain and did their best to avoid their pursuers as they fled back to their kingdom, as did the men of Strathclyde. And behind them lay the bodies of their friends, their neighbors, and their family members. We're told that the Englishmen that pursued them showed no mercy. Wherever they ran, mounted West Saxons pursued them. Large numbers of their army fell prey to English steel as the cavalry hacked at the backs of the retreating soldiers. Only one source, a version of the annals, tell us that Olaf Guthrifsson dies at this point. The other sources indicate that he escapes. So chances are that Olaf was among this group and that he managed to get on a boat and paddle like mad. But he was the exception. Five young kings were dead at Brunenburg. So was the Prince of Scotland, along with large numbers of the Scots, Strathclyde Britons, and Northmen who had come to England. They were all cut down, either there at Brunenburg or in their panicked flight from England. It was a savage conclusion to the war. But it was likely Athelstan's only real choice. Because if England was going to remain, it couldn't risk another invasion. At least not now. Although Athelstan stood triumphant on the field of battle, the price that was paid by England had been a terrible one. Huge numbers of English warriors now lay dead on the fields of Brunenburg. The Ferd was devastated. Large numbers of his nobles were lost, including Athelstan's own cousins, Athelwinna and Elfwinna, the sons of Athelweird 
and grandsons of Alfred the Great. So despite the victory, this had been a dark day for England, and for Athelstan personally. And so, with Northumbria brought back within the English umbrella, and his enemies defeated, Athelstan ordered that the bodies of his cousin be taken to Malmesbury to be buried. And then he set about trying to mend his kingdom. But sometimes bad news comes in bursts. And on that same year of 937, Athelstan got word that his half-sister, Aedhild, had died. She was the wife of Hugh the Great of the Franks, one of his key diplomatic ties to the powers on the continent. Now, unfortunately, it's not recorded what she died of. But she was young, and this death was likely unanticipated. And the loss of Aedhild and the diplomatic link that she functioned as was also felt by Hugh the Great. Because since they never had a child together, all the familial bonds between Hugh and Athelstan had broke upon her death. And that was an enormous problem for the Frankish duke. For over a decade, Hugh had been the de facto ruler of France. He was ruling safely behind the puppet king Rudolf, his brother-in-law. And then when Rudolf died, he'd managed to engineer the return of the heir to the Carolingian dynasty, Athelstan's own nephew, Louis, soon to be King Louis IV. Now initially, Louis was at a disadvantage when he took the throne. He was only 15 at the time of his coronation, and he didn't speak the language, having been raised in the English court by his Anglo-Saxon mother and uncle. And even more precariously, Louis had never met the nobility that were to serve him which meant that he had precious few allies in a court that was notoriously backstabby. But regardless of how Louis may have felt about being a puppet of Hugh the Great, he didn't really have much of an alternative. But that was all starting to change. Nothing beats immersion when you're trying to learn a new language. And beyond that, Louis had one true ace up his sleeve. Like many in Alfred's line, Louis had learned politics in the Anglo-Saxon court, and he had learned specifically in Athelstan's court. So while he might be young, he wasn't naive. And it wasn't long before he was struggling against Hugh's control. Now I'm sure that Louis would have loved Athelstan's support in his fight. But while Athelstan had assisted his foster brothers, the Duke of Brittany and the King of Norway, in their fight for their crowns, the situation in France was more complicated because Hugh was Athelstan's brother-in-law. If Athelstan marshaled his troops to support Louis against Hugh, he'd be marching against a family member, and that could carry serious political and social implications. But with the death of Aedhild, that link had been broken. And Hugh was in a tight spot, because on that same year, he'd been demoted. Even though he had been the Duke of the Franks since the reign of Louis's father, Charles the Simple, young King Louis proclaimed that now Hugh was nothing more than a count. And the precise story behind that demotion has been lost. But it was a clear sign that whatever link there was between Hugh and Louis was rupturing. And adding fuel to the fire, Hugh utterly ignored the revocation and continued to refer to himself as Duke of the Franks. King Louis did not miss that affront to his power. And he began to work closely with Hugh's enemies, including the Archbishop of Reims, Duke Hugh of Burgundy, and Count William Longsword who, by the way, was the son of the famed Viking leader, Rollo. And so for Hugh, it was clear that the wolves were circling. Furthermore, Louis had close ties with Duke Alan II of Brittany and King Hakon of Norway, as the three of them had been raised in the English court together. And that gave him potentially powerful allies. 
Finally, should the worst happen and this political struggle turns into open conflict, thanks to the death of Aedhild, there is now the possibility that England, one of the most powerful military kingdoms in the West, could join in on Louis's side. Hugh needed to acquire allies of his own and neutralize this threat quickly. So he got in touch with King Otto of Germany. And careful listeners will remember Otto as the son of King Henry the Fowler. Even more careful listeners will remember that the reason we know about him was because he married one of Athelstan's sisters back when Otto's father was trying to avoid losing his throne to the Franks. In fact, Athelstan was so obliging that he offered Otto two of his sisters and let the prince choose his favorite. It was a gift, by the way. And that is how their alliance was formed. And I'm sure it all seemed like a good idea at the time. But here's the thing. A lot had changed since that marriage. Not the least of which was the fact that while King Otto did rule over Germany, he didn't rule over Lotharingia anymore. As soon as his father died, they switched sides and joined with the West Franks. And Otto had taken that a bit on the chin. He wanted that land back. And it was land that was now being ruled by Athelstan's nephew, King Louis IV. But, as it happened, Otto had some sisters of his own. And Hugh the Great was looking for allies. And maybe a new wife. And if it all went well, maybe Hugh would be friendly to the idea of Lotharingia returning to the German crown. And so, Hugh the Great ended up marrying Otto the Great's sister, Hedwig, who actually was also pretty great. She just didn't get the title. But Hedwig really was great. She was such a political heavyweight, in fact, that she would end up ruling as regent for a while, and the son that she has with Otto would go on to found the powerful Capet dynasty. But that's all far in the future. For now, through this marriage, Hugh had gained a powerful ally. And he also became the brother-in-law to Athelstan's brother-in-law. And so here we are. With the new King Louis IV and the most powerful noble in France, Hugh the Great, openly acting as rivals. And Hugh, in response, was kind of selling himself off to the highest bidder in an effort to gain the upper hand over Louis. And meanwhile, in England, Athelstan was honestly probably really happy to have a reason to stay out of it. Because while I'm sure that Hugh was hoping that his new in-law connection would be enough to keep England out of the fight, the reality was that England was in no shape for battle in 937. Athelstan wasn't looking for war. But that didn't mean that he could quit. He still had a kingdom to run. There were still people to rule and business to be attended to. And back in England, there was one particular issue that was likely at the forefront of Athelstan's mind after Brunanburh. See, the records indicate that only the Mercians and the West Saxons answered Athelstan's call. And it looks like some of those Mercian and West Saxon lords drugged their feet a bit in getting there. So Athelstan had a question. What do you do with disobedient noblemen? Well, his grandfather Alfred had established a clear precedent. When Wolf Hera betrayed the crown through unknown methods, though I suspect it was related to the surprise attack at Chippenham that resulted in the loss of the kingdom. Well, when Wolf Hera betrayed the crown, the king stripped him of his lands. And that seems like a pretty straightforward sanction, and something clearly within the bounds of what we imagine kingly powers to be. But the problem was that the House of Wessex was actually very far from the old days of the Heptarchy, you know, back when a king essentially owned everything already. With the introduction of Bookland, everything was changing rapidly. 
And now with Bookland, individuals could own land and pass it down as an inheritance. Meaning now that there was an entire class of land that the king didn't own and consequently could no longer seize or partition on a whim. And over time, that class of land was accounting for more and more of the land within the kingdoms, which meant the entire balance of power was shifting. And this changed the relationship between the people and the land. Because now, if you were tossed off your lands, that didn't just impact you. It also disinherited your children, even if they had nothing to do with whatever got you in trouble. So this went beyond a personal punishment. Bookland was how families acquired wealth and power. And that meant that land seizures were a dynastic punishment. And needless to say, the dynasties wanted rules in place to ensure that if any lands were seized, that it would be done justly. And make no mistake about it, land seizures were still a thing. After all, it was one of the biggest sticks that the ruling classes had to keep their underlings in line. But now, it wasn't a simple matter of get off my property. Instead, they had a whole legal process that governed the seizure of those lands. Sort of. See, the matter of what could cause the seizure of lands and precisely how it was to be handled was still being worked out. And that degree of uncertainty isn't exactly ideal when you're talking about your livelihood and your children's inheritance. But this was the Middle Ages. And we're dealing with an honor culture making a first-time venture into property law and criminal code. And there's no better way to illustrate the kind of moral, ethical, and legal rabbit holes that this created than from a true story from the time of Alfred. And we get this story from a surviving 10th century letter. And rather than reading it directly, because it involves a lot of archaic language, I'm just going to tell you the story. So it all starts when a man named Helmstan is convicted of stealing a belt. In response, another man, Athelhelm Higga, who appears to have been Helmstan's lord, basically tells him, well, I hope you like being homeless because I'm taking your lands. We don't allow thieves to live here. And if you're thinking, that seems kind of extreme, he just stole a belt. Well, first of all, belts were extremely fancy at this point in history. It's not like you just grabbed the cheap leather belt you got at TJ Maxx. Instead, many times these were family heirlooms. And second, everyone was still working out the legal codes, so proportionality wasn't entirely worked out yet. But reasoning aside, it was pretty clear that Helmstan overplayed his hand with that whole belt caper. And now, he was about to be completely ruined by his lord. But he still had one card to play. As luck would have it, Helmstan had a powerful godfather, an elderman named Ord Laff. And so Helmstan asked his godfather to step in and help. Ordlaf agreed and went to King Alfred. And there, Ordlaf, the best godfather ever, argued to the king that the Lord Higa shouldn't be allowed to throw Helmstan off his lands over a belt. He can punish him, that's fine, but he shouldn't throw him off the land because those lands were Helmstan's lands. Alfred, who was obviously a busy guy, decided to hand the matter off to a council. This council consisted of numerous highborn officials, including Ordlaf, and they determined that Helmstan should be allowed to present evidence that he owned the land. And Helmstan came prepared. He explained that originally the property was a gift to Elfrith upon her marriage to Athelwulf, and then she sold it to Oswulf, and then finally the land came into his possession. And to prove it, Helmstan produced a charter from the sale to Oswulf, 
which had King Alfred's signature on it. This impressed the council, and they determined that Helmstand could resolve the whole theft and land issue through an oath. And it sounds like the oath they're talking about wasn't just that Helmstand would swear that he owned the lands by deed, but it also sounds like the oath would include some form of punishment for the theft of the belt. And so the decision was made, and then it was explained to Higa, and Higa was not buying it. He didn't want to listen to an oath. He wanted those lands, and he also wanted to take this matter before the king, right now. So Higa marched to the king's chambers, followed by the council, and there they found Alfred washing his hands. And while Alfred the Great was presumably standing there looking for a towel, the council explained that lands were originally Athelfrith's, who got them on the occasion of her marriage to Athelwolf, and then she sold them to Oswulf, who then passed them down to Helmstan, and how Helmstan had a deed proving all this and was prepared to make an oath. And presumably, as Alfred the f***ing Great was wiping his hands on someone's tunic, they explained how Higa here thought that oaths were bullshit, and he wasn't going to let thieves own land that could be his. And when they were done, Alfred, the greatly irritated, asked Higa to explain what part of the council's decision he had a problem with. Exactly. And when Higa was done speaking, Alfred turned to his council and said that Helmstan's crime would be settled with an oath, just as they had originally decided. And a date was set for it. For Alfred, that was the end of the matter, but it was just getting started for Helmstan and the gang. Because Helmstan doesn't seem to have trusted Higa all that much. There was something about the Lord that gave him the impression that he wasn't going to let it drop. So just before the oath was taken, he asked Elderman Ordlaf to protect him. And Ordlaf seems to have seen an opportunity to expand his holdings, because he told Helmstan that if he granted the lands to him, then the lands would be safe. And Helmstan would then be allowed to stay on the land, and Ordlaf would treat him fairly and justly for as long as he lived. Provided, of course, that he didn't get into any more shenanigans. And legally, this actually could have worked, since under that scheme, Helmstan would now be Elderman Ordlaf's subject, and Higa couldn't take lands from Helmstan any longer because Helmstan didn't own those lands. But as his godfather, Ordlaf probably also knew who his godson was, and probably saw where this was going. But Helmstan didn't have much of a choice, so he agreed, and then carried out the oath as the king decreed. And everything was resolved. Until about two years later, when Helmstan stole a bunch of oxen. Damn it, Helmstan. And sure enough, because apparently Helmstan wasn't very good at crime, he was tracked down by the local reeve, who seized his lands on behalf of the crown. And Ordlaf was all like, whoa, 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 do what you want with Helmstan, but those lands aren't his, they're mine. And after a brief legal battle, Ordlaf was granted the lands, and Helmstan was proclaimed an outlaw. But here's the thing about Helmstan. He must have been extremely charismatic, because soon after Alfred died, Edward took the case back up. Apparently, he was told that Helmstan went to Alfred's tomb and made another oath. And Edward, who might not have realized exactly how shady this guy was, was impressed by this story so much that he decreed that Helmstan was no longer an outlaw and gave him an estate. And from the context of the letter, it seems like this wasn't just any estate. It seems like Edward gave Helmstan his old lands back. 
because the surviving letter is in fact Ordlaf explaining how those were his lands granted to him by oath as witnessed by King Alfred himself. And actually, you can tell exactly how sick Ordlaf is about this whole business by the tone that he has towards the end of his letter. Quote, And Lord, when will any suit be ended if one can end it neither with money nor with an oath? And if one wishes to change every judgment which King Alfred gave, when shall we have finished disputing? End quote. You can practically feel his exasperation. And then he points out that those lands aren't even his anymore. He traded them with a bishop in exchange for some lands in Lydiard. And so concludes my favorite letter to King Edward. And I don't know what became of those lands, or of Helmstan or Higa. But the reason why I wanted to share that story with you is not only because it gives you a good window into the raw uncertainty of the legal world during this period, but it also gives you an idea of how the king was constrained by law and precedent. Furthermore, kings during this period weren't just going to fancy balls and wearing nice clothes. They were constantly trying to mete out justice. Sometimes, even when all they wanted to do was wash their hands in peace. And that brings us back to Athelstan. While he did have the ability to seize lands, it was a weighty move that required a defensible reason for it. Specifically, he needed a legally defensible reason, because the noble, or even the noble's family, could bring a legal case to challenge the seizure, even long after he'd died. If Athelstan wanted the land seizure to stick, he needed to make sure that his case was airtight. Otherwise, the noble or the nobleman's family might do what Helmstan did, and wait till he was dead and talk to the new king and try and pursue the case then. And that's something that happened repeatedly in history. So far from the imagined power of a monarch who could rule with impunity and strip lands as he saw fit, Athelstan was thoroughly constrained by the laws and culture of England, even though those laws might seem a bit arbitrary to us now. And so, even though Athelstan was probably hecked right off that members of his army had come late, or not at all, to Brunenburg, he likely had to settle for the fines that he established in his law code. You needed to do something pretty extreme to lose your lands, or at least more extreme than being tardy. However, there was one noble who did fit that bill for land forfeiture. Years ago, a certain noble named Alfred, but not Alfred the Great, conspired to blind Athelstan while he was in Winchester. And what bad Alfred and his co-conspirators were trying to do wasn't simply an attempt to disfigure Athelstan. It was far more devious than that. What they were trying to do was get rid of Athelstan, but they also didn't want to become murderers. So the idea was to disqualify him for rule on the grounds of disability. Hence the attempted at blinding. And things like that can stick with a person. Even if you escape with your eyes intact, just knowing that someone wanted to blind you can really hurt your feelings. So Athelstan remembered this incident pretty well for the rest of his life. In fact, William tells us that in 933, members of the king's court convinced Athelstan that his half-brother, Edwin, was part of the Winchester plot. And honestly, Edwin may have actually been involved in that plot. It's not out of the question, considering that had Athelstan been blinded, Edwin would have become king. But William tells us that, innocent or not, that Athelstan, acting upon information from his nobles, ordered that Edwin be placed in an oarless leaky boat and pushed out to sea. And eventually, probably because he didn't want to die of thirst or hunger, Edwin leapt into the sea and drowned. 
Simeon of Durham seems to back this up, stating that, quote, King Athelstan commanded that his brother Edwin be drowned at sea, end quote. And even Fulcuin seems to have had a sense of what was going on, stating that Edwin was, quote, driven by some disturbance in his kingdom, end quote, and that he boarded a ship to Francia, but drowned before getting there. The point being, though, that the Winchester plot wasn't something that Athelstan was letting go. And that brings us back to Bad Alfred. Because we never really got to the end of his story. He plotted against Athelstan, it didn't work out, and then the story just kind of moved on, right? Well, at some point during Athelstan's reign, Bad Alfred's involvement in the plot got exposed, and he had to flee the kingdom. And here's where it all ties together. At the opening of the episode, I spoke about how among the many dead at Brunenburg were Athelstan's cousins, Elfwina and Athelwina. Well, after Brunenburg, Athelstan ordered that his cousins be buried at Malmesbury, and he gave Malmesbury Abbey some of Bad Alfred's lands to, quote, save the souls of my cousins, end quote. And that seems like a nice thing to do. But here's the rub. That wasn't his land. That was Bad Alfred's land. And as we've been talking about, land seizures were a medieval sticky wicket. And so Athelstan needed to make sure that the way that the lands came into his possession was clearly stated. Otherwise, there might be future legal challenges. And that brings us to the charter that gave these lands. And here's what it says. Quote, But let the wise men of our province known that we did not seize these lands unjustly and give the loot to God. I received them on the judgment of all the noblemen in the kingdom of the English, and besides of the Pope of the Roman Church, John, after the death of Alfred, who was the enemy of our happiness and our life alike. For he contented to the wickedness of my enemies, when on the death of my father they wished to blind me, though God in his mercy rescued me. But their machinations were exposed, and Alfred was sent off to the Church of Rome to answer for himself on oath before Pope John. And this he did at the altar of St. Peter. But after swearing his oath, he collapsed at the altar, and was carried by his men to Scala Angulorum, where he died two nights later. Then the Pope sent to me and asked what should be done with him. At the request of my noblemen, I granted that he be given Christian burial, little though he deserved it. This is how all of Alfred's property came to be adjudged to me. End quote. So what he's telling us is that after leaving England, Bad Alfred went to Rome and upon making an oath to the Pope, he collapsed and died soon thereafter in the English quarter. And that because of his acts, the nobility conferred Bad Alfred's lands to the crown. But there are some problems in that accounting. First of all, the collapsing part reeks of divine retribution. So that's questionable right there. But beyond that, the Pope asking Athelstan whether or not Bad Alfred deserved a Christian burial is downright ridiculous. He's the Pope. He can figure that one out. But regardless of the childish embellishment of this story, what Athelstan was doing here was establishing his right to the lands. And actually, he did the same thing when he granted another portion of Bad Alfred's lands to Bath as well. So while it does seem a bit weird and petty to have a clause that largely consists of tattling on Bad Alfred and then triumphantly detailing his death, this was actually an attempt at dealing with the chaotic nature of 10th century property law. Athelstan wasn't tattling. Not really. He was establishing precedent. Similarly, in another clause, Athelstan laid down a rather melodramatic curse. And actually, this is a fairly common feature for these sorts of grants. Here's what he said. Quote, 
I have these lands with the injunction that none of our successors try to break the continuity of this our gift, even to a tiny extent, so long as Christianity flourishes. If anyone does so try, let him be damned forever by God. End quote. When the laws are uncertain, and when your legal rights can change depending on who is reigning, sometimes you just need to tell a compelling story about a shady dude who was so awful that he ended up dying when he saw the Pope. And if that's not enough, what the hell? Throw in a curse or two just to be safe. Property law, man. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and we're on everything else. And you can find links to all the various communities in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.